Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open the file on Danny and the device. Yes, Julie. So Danny was a client of mine whose parents hired me when he was eight years old. He had cerebral palsy and he had very few words that he could speak, um, orally speak. And over the early elementary school years, his behavior started to get um, worse and there was some noncompliance and the parents believed and, um, you know, usually parents' instincts are pretty good. You know your child really well, right? Yeah. Uh, the parents, their hypothesis was that these behaviors were connected to the fact that Danny was getting increasingly frustrated with his inability to communicate his needs and that it was based on that lack of communication that his behaviors were escalating. Uh, The school district did not necessarily agree with this, and um, so the parents asked the school district if they could trial different augmentative communication devices for him. And we'll, we're going to talk a little bit later on about what that means. But basically, it's there are a number of um, devices that exist out there to assist students who have limited uh, oral communication skills to um, be able to communicate their needs. And the district was providing Danny with an augmentative communication device, but it was very limited in its, uh, in its uh, tools and, and abilities. Um, and the parents just didn't think that he, you know, he could be essentially say yes or no with this device, um, but not much else. And they, they really felt that he needed a more comprehensive uh, device. The district would not agree. So the parents um, spent the summer uh, pretty much depleting their bank account by and went out and rented one of the more expensive equip, pieces of equipment that had a whole bunch of um, fields and different options for words and different abilities to um, communicate different types of needs. And they hired somebody to work with them uh, from the company that, de- that that developed the piece of equipment. And they spent the summer collecting data and working with Danny to see if the district's theory was was correct or theirs was correct as to whether, in fact, these behaviors were connected to his communication. And the good news is, you know, Danny's communication skills kind of exploded over that summer. He was really able to use the device after a short period of time effectively and was able to um, request things and um, even down to the details of, you know, which foods he wanted. There were a number of fields on the particular device where you could customize it and they were just thrilled. They were absolutely thrilled and his behaviors significantly were reduced in terms of his noncompliance and they were thrilled. So they um, presented that data to the school district when the school year started and um, thinking that there would be, you know, the uh, a rejoicing of the team that we had this new device that was working. And the district was not as happy as the parents had thought they would be. And, and, and unfortunately, I think in part because this particular piece of equipment is extraordinarily expensive. And uh, the district, however, looked at the data and realized, you know, we really we really need to um, consider this. And they, they, you know, they went through sort of a back and forth of, oh, well, there's another device that's a little 
little less bells and whistles, but we think could meet his needs. And they tried that for a while. And um, Danny's behavior spiked again. And so ultimately, they finally did agree to bring in this piece of equipment for him, this augmentative communication device. Unfortunately, what happened next and what led the parents to contact me is the school said, we're going to get this piece of equipment, but we're not letting him bring it home with him at the end of the school day. Uh, He can have it here. He can use it here. But we don't want anything to happen to this piece of equipment that's so expensive and therefore you can't bring it home. So, Julie, those are the facts. Well, and you know, Jen, um, I, or those of you who may not know, I have a young man, a child, he's a young man now, um, who is nonverbal. And, you know, when you have a child who's nonverbal, you really need to give um, a student or a young person or an adult for that matter, a way to communicate. And I've always been told that communication, you know, that behavior, if, if you can't communicate, then you are, of course, going to have behaviors. And I remember the story of when my son Alex was a really little guy and we were just figuring out, you know, what all of his issues were and he was nonverbal and he used to bite us all the time Mm -hmm. because it was his only way to get our attention. Right. I mean, it was, it was maladaptive, right? Right. But he was just a little guy. So, you know, communication devices can be so important or, or just any kind of um, system that allows someone to communicate is so important. And what is upsetting when I hear this story, and it's happened to me many times over the years um, when I've done my own advocacy for many students, is you, you can't rational, rationalize that a student is just going to need to communicate when they are at school right. and not also at home, in the community. It's really one of those 24-7 things, 365 yes. rather. Yes, you don't only communicate you know, from eight to two. Um, right. That's not how, how it works for anyone. And can you imagine how frustrated Danny must have been to have finally found a modality that allowed him to communicate with his parents and, and, and the people around him, and then to have that limited to just when he was in school. Uh, I must have been incredibly confusing for him um, until we resolved it. Okay. And, you know, I, I it just, I, when they call, I, I couldn't even believe it. I thought it was just such a, a really insensitive at best uh, position to take. Uh, because, you know, as you said, communication is core to uh, who we are as humans, right? Right. And, you know, I've just dealt with this issue so many times over the years, not only with my own son, but other students. And, you know, sometimes districts get into, well, you have to pay for it. You have to have a insurance policy on it. Mm-hmm. it breaks. And of course, I know we're going to get into all of that when we go over the law and assistive technology. But um, yeah, so Jen, let's talk about the law on this. Okay. So first of all, um, augmentative communication devices, that's a term that a lot of uh, people um, will use. There's also AAC, which is, I think, assisted augmentative communication, but that term isn't really in the 
federal statute that governs special education, which is the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. However, there are other um, definitions for this type of equipment. Um, First and most obviously, we would probably consider this assistive technology, also known as AT, okay? And um, Julie, do you want to just help our our listeners um, to understand what the definition of AT is? I would love to read that. And it's actually um, just for those of you listening who you may want to um, cite these these regulations, I am just going to say the regulation for you very quickly. Um, 300.5 is the assistive technology device definition. And assistive technology device means any item piece of equipment or product system, whether acquired commercially off the shelf, modified or customized, that is used to increase, maintain, or improve the functional capabilities of a child with a disability. The term does not include a medical device that is surgically implanted or the replacement of such a device. So that is the definition of AT. And Jen, do you want me to go on and read what the IDEA also says about the... Yeah, I do. And and before you do, though, just because I think this is interesting, that last piece, it doesn't include a device that's surgically implanted just for people who are interested in, um, you know, statutes and and the law. You know, there's an old joke um, or saying about watching um, laws be made is like watching sausage. You don't really want to do it, okay? Um, The reason that that language is is in there that excludes um, devices that are surgically implanted is when Congress was debating the language of how to define assistive technology, there was a big concern on the part of school districts that they would be responsible for paying for cochlear implants for students who are deaf um, or hard of hearing. And they were, you know, very, very concerned about the costs associated with that and uh, successfully urged Congress to consider that as something that should be excluded because they perceived it as a medical device, not an educational one. So just a little fact for people who are interested in how these things come about. I love that you shared that. I am going to read the definition of equipment in the IDEA, which is under regulation 300.14. And it reads, it is machinery, utilities, and built-in equipment, and any necessary enclosures or structures to house the machinery, utilities, or equipment. This is very exciting. um, (laughs) Language, yeah. (laughs) And all other items necessary for the functioning of a particular facility as a facility for the provision of educational services, including items such as instructional equipment and necessary furniture, printed, published, and audiovisual instructional materials, telecommunications, sensory, and other technological aids and devices, and books, periodicals, documents, and other related materials. Very, very jazzy, sexy stuff, right? <laughs> so, but those, the, both of those definitions, I, you know, I think from my view, um, augmentative communication really falls more clean, more cleanly. Is that a proper way of saying it, is cleaner under the definition of assistive technology than under equipment, but I think you could argue both. Um, And let's talk about the fact, Julie, um, that assistive technology is something that is required to be reviewed at every development of an IEP. So this is something that is not, you know, reserved for certain types of disability or um, only to be discussed at, you know, when a student reaches a certain age. No, every time that IEP is to be developed, Assistive technology and communication needs are supposed to be considered. If you, if you want to read that part of the regulations, 
you, uh, that might be interesting to our listeners as well. They most certainly will. It, it's a very long regulation, so I'm just reading snippets of it as it relates yeah. to what we're talking about. And this happens to be regulation section 300.324. The IEPT must consider the communication needs of the child and in the case of a child who is deaf or hard of hearing, consider the child's language and communication needs, opportunities for direct communications with peers and professionals um, and professional personnel in the child's language and communication mode academic level, and full range of needs, including opportunities for direct instruction in the child's language and communication mode, and consider whether the child needs assistive technology devices and services. Yep. So um, clearly there is authority in the law for a device such as the one that Danny required. And as with all of our cases that we talk about and the examples we give, the the INIEP, Individualized Education Program, that document that's created by the team, the I is individualized, right? So whether or not Danny required this particular device in order to receive a free and appropriate public education as he's entitled to under the federal law is a fact-by-fact, case-by-case analysis that a court or hearing officer would do if the dispute got that far. Um, thankfully, it didn't get that far and we were able to resolve it. But um, this is a, a, a common area of dispute where uh, some children require rather expensive equipment or devices in order to receive an appropriate program. And it is not uncommon. I've seen many, many examples, everything from you know straps and certain kinds of chairs to other kinds of equipment where the school is reluctant to send it home because they're worried the equipment's going to be damaged in some way. And I wish I could say that there is a clear cut, you know, absolutely it should always come home case or or rule. There isn't. But uh, in an issue with the communication device, there have been a number of cases that have said, you know, communication is so core to a child's ability to not just access their education during the school day, but to learn for the parents to be able to support their child in home with homework and other things, and to um, to generalize skills outside of the school environment so that, you know, Danny or students like Danny c- can actually demonstrate the skills that are being worked out on in school in the community. Um, so all of those things weigh in favor of a device like that coming home. Now, um, can a school ask the parents to put such a piece of equipment on their insurance ask for um, them to somehow indemnify the school district or agree to replace it if it's damaged. The answer to that is probably not. And I know that sounds like such a lawyer's answer, but most of the cases I've reviewed have have said that while they might be uh, able to ask a parent to put it on their insurance policy, they probably cannot require a parent to pay for its replacement if it's damaged. Um, because it's part, if it's been determined that that piece of equipment is necessary for the child to receive a free and appropriate public education, then um, they need it and it should be free. Right. And let me read um, what it says in the IDEA about whether or not, um, how to decide whether or not a, a piece of equipment should come home. And this is in section 300.105. And it says, on a case-by-case basis, the use of school purchased assistive technology devices in a child's home or in other settings is required if the child's IEP team determines that the child needs access to those devices in order to receive a FAPE, which is great. 
rather general, but it's what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, here, here's the rationale that I just think is so simple. If you're if you're communicating in school and you need that 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 device for your primary communication, and then all of a sudden you're you're learning how to use it in school and you want to generalize um, the use of that device, but then you you don't you're not able to bring it home. It's like clipping a child's wings, holding their hands behind their back, and saying, "Well, you can only communicate when you're at school." Yeah. Exactly. And then I can think of other examples. And, you know, that's what we're trained to do is to think of other examples where maybe it wouldn't be required to go home. So let's just say a child has a particular mat that the school provides because that particular child, you know, during circle time at school gets really antsy. And this, they've found that this particular mat allows him or her to sit still during that, you know, time. And that's that's used at school for that purpose. Well, most parents aren't having circle time in their home. And that's a probably reasonable thing to say stays at school. And they may need to use that for other students. But it is determined by the IEP team, and it should be based on the child's unique needs. And you know, Jen, I've found over the years that most parents are unbelievably willing to be very flexible with school teams when you need two of something. Yeah. For the home, one for school. Yes. You know, and, and so, you know, but they're usually lower ticket items. And, you know, I find that most parents want to be reasonable and say, well, we'll get our own for home. You have this one at school. But when we're talking about these assistive technology devices, that can be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Rationalizing to have two of them, right? Right. Um, Especially, um, you know, there are many, um, sorry, Um, especially, if it if a device is even just remotely a little bit different than the one at school than the one at home, mm-hmm. could have generalization issues. Like you, you want it to be consistent, right? There's a good argument for that. Definitely, and and we always encourage our our clients to be flexible and understanding. And in in this particular case, the parents had a really good insurance policy, and they didn't have any issue with saying we will. Put it, run it through our insurance, through a rider on our insurance to make sure that if anything happens to it, you know, it's it's covered. Um, again, probably not legally required to do it, but they were willing to do it because they wanted to work with the district. Yeah. So, Julie, so that's the law on it. Let's let's yeah. go to our your favorite part, the rewind. The rewind, the rewind, the rewind. Yes, let's rewind, Jen. Yes. So what could have been done differently? This is the part of our episode where we talk about how this situation that led the parents to have to hire a lawyer could have been avoided by the parents, the school, the the whole situation, where it went wrong and maybe where in the future you um, as either a parent or an educator, related service provider, you can hopefully avoid these kinds of difficulties. And, and I'll start with the fact that uh, ultimately, the level of uh, respect for the communication needs of Danny was just not, and I, and I think this is a fundamental issue that really set everything off from the very beginning. It just wasn't there. And, I, and I, I'm always very careful, and so are you, Julie, to point out we're brought in when things are really bad, right? People don't go out and hire lawyers and advocates to go to, to their child's school with them unless they feel they don't have a, a, any other choice in order for their child to get what they need. And so in this particular case, unfortunately, the team that was involved wasn't recognizing the very important nature of of Danny's need to communicate and that that was why his behaviors were so um, prevalent and were getting worse. And and 
on this point, and I think it's just um, uh, something I'd like to share with all of our listeners because it was a book that I read that really transformed my entire viewpoint about how important communication is for our students who are nonverbal or preverbal. The book is called Out of My Mind. It's actually a novel. You can get it on Amazon. The cover is like, it looks like there's a goldfish jumping out of a, of a goldfish um, bowl. And Sharon Draper is the author. And it's a novel, but it's told, I, I feel like this book should be required reading for like every educator, anyone who has anything to do with disability. It's told from the perspective of, of a girl in school who is nonverbal, but is incredibly bright, but everyone around her, other than her parents, um, are assuming that she has no abilities and no skill because she can't communicate. And it's her, her world is very, very frustrating because the presumption, because she can't communication is incompetence rather than what we always hope people do, which is to presume competence, right? And so in the book, she is able to get a device and the device allows her to communicate. And suddenly all the educators come to the realization that she's very bright and has been really segregated most of her education with one teacher in one room or maybe two kids um, rather than in the mainstream because nobody took the time to really assess her communication skills and her uh, ability to use other devices in order to communicate. And it's transformative. It also is just a great, great book. And I cry every time I read it, which I've done several times. It's, you won't be able to, to put it down. Uh, you know, when you read it, you'll realize that communication, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, it is the core to so much of our education and our, uh, of our lives. And so at the outset, there wasn't a true understanding of how important it was to get to the bottom of Danny's ability to communicate. You know, Jen, that leads me to another um, thing that the the team could have been more receptive to. And that was trialing the equipment and different equipment. I mean, right. how do you, you know, I always like to say, you can't know what you want until you know what you don't want, right? And if mm -hmm. we trial one thing, right? And especially if it's something that you know may not be as impactful for this student, you can't make it a, a definitive decision, right? And so I think just, being more open to the wide variety of all of the things they could have considered to trial um, really would have been a, a much better way to go from the very beginning as well, because tick-tock, tick-tock, time went on. Yes. Um, so much time was wasted in not collecting data on how um, effective the, the equipment was. Well, and the, the thing about that is, and this is something we see happen uh, a lot. The resistance to, to being wrong. <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of problems happen in this world because people don't like to admit they made a mistake, including parents, okay? Right. But the parents had a theory about the behavior. The school had a different theory about the behavior. Don't be afraid of the data. Let's take data. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're, I'm, I'm right. It doesn't, you know, nobody has to feel like this is, you know, some kind of a war. Uh, the goal is to make sure the child is getting what the child needs. And that's in everyone's best interest, especially since Danny's behavior was interfering with their ability to educate him. And I'm sure it was frustrating for them as well. And so, um, you know, just kind of being stubborn is something that we try to uh, caution teams to avoid getting into the pattern of because it can result in wholly unnecessary legal disputes, as well as a lack of trust between the parent and the school district if, if it continues. And, you know, the other thing, Jen, is I think we, you know, before we move on to the verdict, is ask for an assistive technology evaluation. Yes. 
Um, most schools, and not all of them, I shouldn't say most, um, you know, here we are in Connecticut, and I can certainly say that, but I, I can't speak for other parts of the country. Um, many districts will have somebody within their school system, may not be in the building, it may be within the district itself, who has gone on to get training in assistive technology. Uh, and so many school districts will have these people already it, 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 you know, um, at their ready because they are employees of the district. But if not, um, there are outside professionals who can do assistive technology evaluations. And um, I think it just would have been very prudent for this team, whether the, whether the parents requested it or the school district recommended it, to have an assistive technology evaluation. Great, great point. All right. So shall we go to the verdict. We shall. Yes. So the verdict on this one. So here, here, I just want to say in, in the 20 plus years that I've been practicing special education law and that Julie's been doing advocacy work, each of us, uh, we've seen such a dramatic explosion in assistive technology, because of course the world has seen a dramatic explosion in technology, right? And the ways in which assistive technology can level the playing field for children with disabilities is astounding. I've seen such an important shift in the focus of assistive technology for students. And what's nice about assistive technology is that because kids love technology and so many kids have devices, you know, left, right, and center, it, it, it gives many students who require support a much more socially acceptable scaffold of services and supports than having, say, a one-to-one paraprofessional, another adult with you. If you can give a kid an iPad, as an example, and that student is able to navigate their schedule or communicate differently, et cetera, with that, as opposed to having you know, an adult sitting with them during certain parts of the day, that is so much more um, socially acceptable and less restrictive, which the law certainly strongly prefers than um, other kinds of supports that we had been providing prior to having the level of technology we have today. So the verdict on this is embrace technology, evaluate your child's needs for it, and uh, you don't resist it because it can make the difference for many students between a successful life, let alone education. And thankfully for Danny, it eventually did. And so on that note, we are going to close the file on Danny and the device. Take care. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed.